Welcome to Grab Life Big. Grab Life Big. The exclusive podcast for healthy, wealthy, generous men who choose to lead epic life. Or as a few of us say, badass rich guys who do epic shit. And now, your host, Pat Hybin. If this is empty, this doesn't matter. Glad you were home. I'm always home. I'm on cool. Me too. You're doing great, dude. Telling true currency in this bankrupt world is what you share with someone else when you're on cool. Is that my advice to you? I know you think these guys are your friends. If you want to be a true friend to them, be honest and unmerciful. Wrong Tribe Confounds, The Right Tribe Compounds. Get your free copy of the runaway bestseller Tribe of Millionaires, a $20 value at tribeofmillionaires.com free. Just pay the shipping. That's tribeofmillionaires.com. All right, GoBros. I got a great uh, new uh, GoBro on Mr. Garrett Gunderson. We're going to do this a little bit different than most of the shows that you've heard, uh, just because Garrett is such a wealth of knowledge and we want to utilize his time with us most effectively. So get your papers and pencils ready because this is going to be a good one. Garrett, welcome to the GoBro Room. All right, man. Looking forward to it. Hey, Garrett, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself so they can get to know you better. Maybe like, like a personal story from the day you were born to today in three minutes. All right. Born in a small coal mining town, lived in a town that at one time at its peak had 5,000 people and two cops, and today's down to 1,000 people and five cops, so you know it's going in the wrong direction. My dad was a coal miner, my grandfathers were coal miners, my great-grandfather was a coal miner, and I've never stepped foot in a coal mine. So fortunately, they were advocates for me to do something different. Originally, that was... You should go to college, get good grades, work for someone, but I had a different path because when I was 15, I started my first business detailing cars, started winning business competitions because of my ability to speak and present that business. So I won everything from third place, rural young entrepreneur to first place to first place for the state of Utah to governor's young entrepreneur and then on to the young, uh, you know, the rural young, no, not rural, uh, the SBA young entrepreneur of the year for 30 and under when I was 17. So that came with money. I wanted to invest it so I can get out of this little town. And uh, by learning how to invest, I first got my butt kicked a little bit, you know, investing just in the stock market, not knowing what I was doing and in certain products that had too high a commission and fee. And then that led me to actually getting in the financial industry because I was interviewing and trying to figure out what to do with this. I got offered an internship, which sounds cool, but that was just me peddling products like uh, life insurance and mutual funds until the year 2000, the market went down and my IQ started going up because I went on a 26 month journey flying somewhere every single month, interviewing the best financial minds because I was young, they were willing to meet with me. Sometimes I had to pay, other times I just got in because they wanted to pay it forward. And that really started to open my eyes to how the wealthy really worked. 
and what opportunities they were. And I actually started to create my own thing in the year 2000 and officially launched it in 2001. And uh, we hit Inc. 500 with it. Uh, it's grown into what it is today, which is Wealth Factory, where we help entrepreneurs keep a lot more of the money they make, get their financial house in order, and have you know people that are financial advocates for them so that they could scale their business appropriately and enjoy life along the way. So you've essentially been a financial advocate yourself for the last 20 years. Yeah, I mean, more of a, for like three years, more of like a product peddler and then transitioned into an advocate, had to kind of invent something. I would say it really started to happen in 2005 where I was really more of an advocate than a advisor working on commission. So in an advocate, you mean, charge a fee rather than getting a 90% commission on whole life and getting a commission under series no, seven. I have no assets under management. I dropped my series six, 63, 65. I dropped all that in 2005. I walked away from all my renewals. I walked away from all that to build something that the way I get paid is people write me a check. I also get paid by creating intellectual property. I write a lot of books. I create courses and, um, you know, people hire me for one-on-one. -on -one. I only do that in one-day increments. I don't do financial coaching one-on-one -on -one unless they, they fly into me and spend the day with me because honestly, there's plenty of people with the knowledge and on my team and maybe even more so. I like to work with people that are more focused on their vision, on expansion, on doing something of significance. So, and I've done that with the GoBro before, you know, Bruce Peterson flew in, we spent the day on, on some things that he could do and uh, we recorded some of it. I made a boatload of connections for him so that he could get his intellectual property out there at a different level. All right, so tell me about your personal life, Garrett. What, uh, you got children, where do you live, that sort of thing. Yeah, I'm like, I have a lot of hobbies and uh, like to take, I just took my kids fishing this last weekend, had a good time doing that. I've got two boys, 11 and 14. We uh, live in Salt Lake City, but we have a cabin, might be more of a lodge than a cabin. Um, it's pretty nice up in uh, Woodland, Utah, which is just east of Park City. And, you know, there I've got, a, I just built a podcast studio. I've got, a, a, you know, Turbo Can-Am. We've got outdoor fireplace. We've got pool table, ping pong, foosball, full gym. Like we're just, we, we live the good life up there and we uh, love entertaining and bringing people up there. I just uh, made some nice ribs on my Traeger grill for my family this last weekend and uh, some killer ribeye steaks. So, yeah, I'm into, I mean, I smoked a tobacco pipe with my dad for the first time ever uh, on Friday after taking him and my mom fishing. So found out my grandfather smoked a, a tobacco pipe once a week on Sundays. So yeah, I, I like to have these like vices that are more like satiating experiences and catalyzed connections. So I consider myself an amateur barista, you know, go take those types of courses and make people killer lattes and cappuccinos. I got my whiskey sommelier. So I take people through whiskey tasting. So this is uh, this is what I do on the personal side. Yeah, I love all that stuff, all that stuff. So let's talk about you and how you first created wealth yourself, right? So, like, how how did you make your first million that you actually saved? Yeah, that was a that was a combination of real estate. So I had some real estate holdings that got me there. They also uh, real estate's what got me out of there. So I got to a million, then kind of went back because uh, I, I got a little bit greedy. Like I knew I wanted to sell all my real estate um, because it had run up so much, but I decided 
in 2007, June of 2007, I said, I'm going to put everything on the market for 10 to 15% over market price. And so I made a killing on a lot of that real estate and realized, you know, uh, I think the first time I had a million cash in the bank was 2006. And when I was in, you know, and so definitely from a net worth standpoint at that point, you know, I think I was at, uh, in 2006, I was at about 8 million uh, net worth. A lot of that was business, real estate, because uh, I had over 100 properties. But real estate, I, didn't, I was annoyed by it. It was just, I tried to have managers, I tried to have property managers, I tried to have maintenance people, but I was getting dragged into it too much. And the type of property I like to create is intellectual property. So um, I, think I, I think I had my first million when I was 26, and then I lost over a million uh, before I was 30. Um, and that was a lot of real estate downturn. And I've figured out how to make it a lot more sustainable today. Wow. Okay. So we'll talk about that. So what would you say your net worth is now? I don't even give a shit. I think net worth's stupid. I think net worth is one of the more worthless indicators of wealth. I think cash flow is king. And if we focus too much on net worth, like, cause I, I looked at my net worth statement cause I had to do a premium finance deal and it was substantial, but I'm like, most of this means nothing because A, it's in a business I'm not willing to sell. So that was the, the majority, right, of where my net worth resided. And um, like what I really care about is my liquid net worth where I can access cash, which I store in two places. I have a lot of overfunded cash value policies and I have a captive insurance agency that's right now just sitting in a money market because I can pull it out at any time and I'm looking for discounted distressed assets like people that are in bad situations when I think the economy is going to change here pretty shortly. Um, and then cash flows king, which I have a licensing structure where I license my content that creates recurring revenue. And so when I stopped focusing as much in my 20s on my net worth, because that was very much egocentric and focused a lot more on my liquidity and cash flow, I felt like that was the key way to move to sustainability versus something that looked good on paper, but didn't translate into life. Wow, that's great. Okay, so bottom line is when you save cash, it goes in a captive insurance policy, one, yeah. or two, what, what was the second one? Overfunded cash value, just standard overfunded whole life policies. That's it. Whole life policies. Okay. So basically, all your cash goes into insurance products. Well, then- a captive insurance agency isn't an insurance product. It's an 831B. It's an insurance company that I own. It's not invested in insurance at all. Okay. And we won't, we won't get everybody in downtime on that, but uh, the, your horizontal income is coming from the books that you write. That's your intellectual property, right? Well, I've got books, um, but I also have programs in Wealth Factory like Freedom Fast Track and Wealth Architecture Premium and then a digital portfolio that I get a percentage of all the income that comes in from that for intellectual property. Wow. And, and so how many books do you have? Uh, let's see. Killing Sacred Cows, Five Day Weekend, What Would the Rockefellers Do? Budgeting Sucks comes out uh, at the beginning of 2020. The Money Tree, Portal to Genius, and then When Then Play will come out in 2021, even though the manuscript is done and through one round of edits. So seven books. That's really cool. You know, a lot of people, you know, can't get over the philosophy of having more than one book, you know, and people like you help stretch everybody's mind to that right? That you could have a book and it could be a book for 10, 20 years and you could still have a horizontal income from it, especially nowadays with self-publishing, right? 
Like they're all these self-published. Yeah. So some are self-published. Like what would the Rockefellers do? That's self-published. The Money Tree is published by Gildan Media. Killing Sacred Cows and Win Then Play are both pu- going to be. They're published by Greenleaf. Five Day Weekend is published by Bard Press. And Budgeting Sucks is self-published. So I have a combination of of self-published or published. I've made really good money on self-published. Uh, I did a book, Portal to Genius, where I didn't do a lot of the writing. I didn't sit down and type it. I spoke it to an author that wrote a book called Jackrabbit Factor and was going to wait 13 years to write the, the sequel to the book because there was a lot of pieces that were like this 13-year gap where they were going to write about. Well, after I started coaching, they were like, oh, this is great. We could fill in that gap. So she did the writing. I did the content, like stories, but she's a great story writer. So we did that book together, self-published it, and offered like one-on-one support with it that came to my firm. So we made way more money on that directly than we made from Killing Sacred Cows because Killing Sacred Cows, I was getting checks from publishers, you know, after book sales. The real key was the relationships that that book built with Killing Sacred Cows more so than because I spent so much money on the PR firm and on USA Today and Wall Street Journal and Publisher Weeklies and New York Times ads. So I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I was just throwing everything I could at it to get it out there. I didn't want it to end up in my garage because I knew the only way it was valuable is if it ended up in someone's head. So, uh, you know, I, I've made, you know, I've, I've done it different ways. What would the Rockefellers do? I think we've sold like 35,000 copies. That's all through my marketing team doing offers on Facebook and YouTube and to our existing database. So we haven't even really had other people promote that book. That's great. You know, funny side story is when I wrote my book, I went through Greenleaf. And they used your book, Killing Circuit Cows, as their poster boy at that time. And uh, I I actually reached out to you when I was considering using them and uh, just talked to one of your people. But but when when my book hit the bestseller list, they put it in that case next to yours. So hey, I love uh, it. That's funny. (laughs) That's funny. All right. So uh, and I'm using them again for win and play because, as you know, they're a co-publisher. So it's like it's in between self-published and fully published, you know, which I just, my concern with the fully published book is 18 months that it takes usually to come out. And, you know, I don't have final say on every little bit of it. So that's another concern that I have. And Greenleaf was kind of like the best of both worlds because I was unknown when I wrote Killing Sacred Cows. I didn't have a big tribe. I didn't have a big following. I was pretty much a regional guy. And so it was nice that they got me distribution into bookstores and they got me distribution into airports. And sure, I paid the co-ops on that, but I wouldn't even have that option without them. And then they just, I thought they did a beautiful job with the design and with the editing process. Uh, they didn't do as good as they needed to on distribution. I don't think they trusted me that I was going to get as much distribution or sales on the distribution they had. So I think they were cautious on what they did. So, uh, you know, I think that now they, they realize if I say I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go all in. And when then play is my 20 year book. Like I'm going to put 20 years of my life into that book, you know, just really getting it out there. Cause I feel like it's a fundamental shift that the world needs and it's more revolutionary than killing sacred cows. Although it has a fourth of it still in that, that mindset type of aspect, but in a different way. Um, and it goes way deeper on money. And it's the first book I've written. That's got, you know, a, a robust number of chapters on legacy. What would the Rockefellers do has some legacy in it, but not enough. 
So women play. Right now, my problem with it is it's super long. So I'm looking to create like a choose your own adventure. So you can go through the book on how it really applies to you and your situation versus having to read every word. And so it's, that's why it's being delayed on when it comes out. I got to do it right. Wow. So let's talk about that. When, then, play. And we talked before this started. And, and uh, of course, when you, when you think about that title, everybody listening to this is probably thinking the opposite of what it actually is. Tell me what it really means. Well, to, to understand what it means, let's talk about what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean playing not to lose where so much of the world is trapped, right? Go bros aren't trapped in playing not to lose. Playing not to lose, you wouldn't res resonate with this tribe. Playing not to lose is being stuck in the past, wishing nothing would change, being a miser and looking at all the ways that you can save at the expense of production, or overly planning for you know retirement with being you know, so critical with every little expense that you have along the way and over planning with retirement plans versus with a business. So playing not to lose or stuck in the past. Playing to win is where people are stuck in the future. They're striving, they're working harder, they're hustling, they're grinding. It's all about what can I do more, bigger, better. And it's even where people get into like this high roller mentality where they're just trying to get everyone to give them the power and hand them everything. And so they're just trying to take through the most competitive ways, all that they can, because they hope that one day, someday, they can finally make it. And so some GoPros are stuck in that, honestly. And I've been stuck in any of these things. I've been stuck in the future where it's like at the cost of my health, at the cost of my family, at the cost of anything, because I just wanted more. But you check off those boxes in, in that and you, you find out, wait, this isn't necessarily what I wanted. It's just what I thought I wanted, because more is an impossible game. There's always going to be more, no matter how much you have. So win then play is actually building a life worth living where you're completely intentional and you have the depth and quality today and you're excited about a compelling future because you create a vision that's worthy of your life, but you also enjoy the in-between. And when it comes to your money, win then play means making money on the buy. So you find a distressed seller, you buy that property right now where it's already cash flowing or it's already got equity. It means creating cash flow from day one. It means creating economic independence where you have enough cash flow coming in from assets to cover your basic expenses. So if you choose not to work tomorrow, you're fine, right? And it also means being more efficient. Four ways to be more efficient. Save on tax, save on interest, save on investment fees that are non-performing, protect your downside, and save on insurance costs where there's duplicate coverages or costs. Because I save by having my own insurance company. I don't have to buy insurance from insurance companies on things that are overly expensive but don't protect me enough, right? Then on, on the third part of women play is scale, where we scale back from the things we hate doing and we delegate the hell out of those. So we do only what we do best and we become more focused rather than diversified. And one of the ways we scale is we improve our industry rather than competing in it. We teach the industry how to do it better and make money by teaching that industry. Rather than just being B2C, we become B2B. Or we learn how to extend the lifetime value of a customer by adding more value to them, right? And it's how we can profit from our ideas from day one without even having to raise capital. That's win and play. And that's really revolutionary called the cycle of creation. And then finally, win and play is legacy. It's how we live, not just what we leave. It's the examples we set. It's capturing our philosophies. It's leaving memoirs so that people know who we are, what we stood for, and actually creating a family constitution inside of our trust so it's dynamic and it has personality rather than just 
the legalese that's required from the attorneys. So win them play is a huge concept where we shift from a world of competition and scarcity to one of collaboration and value creation. And when we become the greatest value creators, then we live a life we love along the way. We're not trying to retire from what we do. Wow, I can tell you're passionate about that. And it sounds like a hell of a book. And I uh, can't wait to read it. I mean, that's, uh, I love everything you said there. The Wrong Tribe Confounds, The Right Tribe Compounds. Get your free copy of the runaway bestseller Tribe of Millionaires at $20 value at tribeofmillionaires.com free. Just pay the shipping. That's tribeofmillionaires.com. Let's play a little game of bull and bear, if you don't mind. I'm curious to see where, where Garrett is on, on uh, some of these things. 2020, why don't I... Yell out an asset class, and you just tell me if you're a bull and a bull or a bear, and why. How's that? Okay. So, stock market, 2020. Bear. Why? You can go buy a private company right now for two to three times multiple. The stock market's at 29 times plus. I mean, it's insane. It's it's it doesn't make sense. It's leveraged on consumerism, which is not sustainable because we have 7.6 million people behind on their car payments. If interest rates go up, this thing freaking collapses. We've been patching it. We see the inverted yield curve that's happening. I mean, every indicator says it's only because people are being mindless and handing their money over, not because there's fundamentals. And eventually there will be a reckoning. 2020 feels like it's a good time to have that reckoning. Awesome. Well put and uh, very succinct. Real estate. Uh, High-end luxury real estate. I'm very bearish. Lower-end like rental real estate for individual residences, I'm very bullish because even in recessionary times, that actually can increase in value because the, the person who's you know just getting by with middle America, not making a tremendous amount of money, has to live somewhere. And as we see credit getting decimated, we see lending tightening up, people are going to look for a place to live. I'm very bullish on that side. So blue collar houses, would you say, not condos? Yeah, I mean, I, like my concern with condos, especially if it's like luxury condos, is those really get hit hard in recessionary times because especially when it's the second home or highly speculative because it's in one of these, you know, Vegas, Miami, you know, uh, L.A., like that kind of stuff gets hit pretty quick. But having single family residences or even duplexes, maybe even fourplexes in the right situation, just residential real estate that people can afford the payment on, that's going to be huge. Love it. Love it. Cannabis. Yeah. I mean, I think that probably bullish. I, I feel like it's in the overhype stage where people act like cannabis solves the every world problem. But uh, I would, I do think it's a good alternative to, you know, a lot of the opioid crisis that we're facing. We're seeing a lot of deregulation. We're seeing a lot of, you know, ability for people to do stuff with it. I still feel like it's fragile from a standpoint of legality. And from a changing of opinion of whoever's in office, I think that one of Trump's biggest moves, if he wanted to get reelected, is he would just make he would just legalize everything around that arena because then the Democrats would have to basically be on his side that way. But we've seen Republicans won't abandon him no matter what he does. So um, you know that could change the game overnight. But it's something I stay away from just because I don't like stuff that is that heavily regulated and that 
you know, we still see a lot of the people that are growing it and dealing in it. They have to deal with cash. They have tax disadvantages, but we see a lot of interest in it. We see a lot of benefit from it, from everything from pain management to you name it. So um, I'm, I'm kind of like neutral, but I, I think it's probably more bull than bear. Yeah, Tim Rhoda actually came up with that strategy or told me about his thought on that same exact last-minute strategy via Trump last year. Maybe he got it from you, but uh, but yeah, I agree. That would be that would be one strategic power play for sure if he did that at the last minute. Yeah, I, I just um, thought my buddy that's a, a huge cannabis advocate is <laughs> the one that told me about it. I'm like, that would be pretty genius. Cryptocurrency. It's still the Wild West, man. It's still super early. We're still in the world of speculators, you know, like it's the gold rush. But most people that got they got decimated in the gold rush. The people that made the money were the ones selling the picks, shovels and compasses. So, you know, my co-author of Five Day Weekend has crushed it in cryptocurrency because he has a, a mine in Iceland and, uh, he, you know, he has a fund and he does the education around it. So he's on the right side of history on that. You know, I think everyone else, it's still it, like there's a lot of things that make sense about it. There's a lot of things that, that are going to work with it, but it's still highly speculative for most people. And until I see more transaction value, until I see, you know, it becoming more widely adopted, the problem is it's so fractionalized because China's going to do their own thing versus the U.S. And yeah, there's some great things that can happen when we use blockchain and when we eliminate a lot of the inefficiencies that money has and the centralized system we've seen with the centralized bank. But we still have the Fed that has so much freaking control over everything and what they do. So uh, right now, I think it has been built more on hype and hope than on practicality, but I think the practicality will come. So I'm, I'm, I'm still like in the staying out of it for now. You know, if you got in really early, awesome, then you made your money. Um, but if right now, I just feel like we're in kind of the weird kind of in-between zone. Yeah, do you know your co-author, do you know, does he, does he mind Bitcoin? Yeah. Or altcoin. He has a lot of Bitcoin. A lot of Bitcoin. He has a lot of Bitcoin. Okay, yeah. so he's heavy on that. Okay, so what about... And he almost dollar? left crypto because he had it stolen from him at one time when he was a really early, early adopter. But, I mean, he's, he's, he's really in on it. And uh, he's much more intelligent about it than I am at this point. What about U.S. dollar? I mean, <laughs> you know, for, for a fiat currency... I'm as bullish as you could be on a fiat currency. Okay. And so gold? Here's my issue with gold. I think it's going to do well in the recession because it typically does because it gets hyped up. Like, I'm still confused why gold has such value other than we agree that it has value. When we're like, hey, gold is va it's, it's tangible. Yeah, it's tangible, but what are we even using it for? If times were that bad, it, what are you going to do with your gold bar or your gold bullion, you know? Like, when it really comes down to it, if it's as bad as they say, toilet paper is going to crush it. Batteries are going to mean something. Food is going to be what really counts. But in crisis, gold and silver start to go up because people get so hyped up about it. I say have physical receipt of it because I don't like how much paper there is that on gold that hasn't even been mined. And it doesn't cash flow. So unless you're a real expert in it, I'd be careful because it's a very, very volatile market. One major player decides to sell in silver and you watch a thing go down by a substantial percentage in a single day. But it is one of those more volatile things that during crisis times, a lot of people can make a boatload of cash. What about the U.S. government? If you were to say, is Garrett bullish on the stability of it? 
Bearish, totally bearish. I mean, look, when you invade the treasury to the level they have, tell me a single powerful government that made it long term. And what do you think that means? It means politics has become so complicated that we don't have measurement on what's really going on. And because we don't know what's really the conversations behind closed doors, what's really happening, and it gets so complicated and so debated, and so this party versus that party, most of that's red herrings that distracts us. There's no accountability. We're 23 trillion going on 24 trillion in debt. Any business that was like that, we go, they're done. And what do we do? We lowered taxes at a time where we're that high in debt. I hate paying taxes because I feel like it's an inefficient use of my money and there's no accountability. But at the same time, I'm realistic saying, we think lowering taxes is going to be a solution in this level of debt? No. We've got to start having them reduce spending. We've got to rely a lot more on small businesses. We've got to educate our population to become more profitable and not just rely on handouts or not expect someone's going to save them. Because of a million things, I'm as bearish as I could be on the government. It's just that we have enough producers and innovation in America that we continue to bolster and hold up a faulty organization that is filled with a ignorance and lack of information and no accountability and no good intentions or good person is going to change a broken system. The system is not in a good place, nor is it going to be anytime soon. What do you feel about uh, some of these mutual funds like Peter Schiff's Euro Pacific Capital Fund that invests in companies outside of the U.S.? That aren't that aren't won't be affected should the should our government crash or have issues. And, I hate and, mutual and funds. Hands, there's no mutual fund that I would ever support because mutual funds take and they have too many companies involved in it. And I don't like um, the concept of a mutual fund that's non-hedge fund because as soon as it's not a hedge fund, they're restricted to whatever they're investing in based upon the, the mutual fund's objectives. So that could be completely out of favor globally, internationally, nationally, and they're still stuck holding the bag on something that isn't in favor. Plus, no one can really measure what's happening inside of those mutual funds and those companies because there's too many companies to really measure what's happening in their boardroom and what's going on with their cash flows. And then we're also de dealing with the deceit of those major corporations that have all this pressure to uphold their stock value because of the fiduciary rules of a CEO towards a shareholder. So we're just seeing too much manipulation and too much inflation in those types of things. And so I despise mutual funds. I have zero money in a mutual fund. I will never have money in a mutual fund. And even if it does 100% next year, I don't care because I have a sustainable model in my business that I have a lot more influence, a higher degree of control, a way to protect the downside, a way to learn lessons along the way. And I know mostly what's going on in my boardroom versus what's going on in their boardroom. Yeah, and that leads to something I remember you saying at the last GoBundance event, which was the fastest way to build your net worth is to work on your company and build your company, right? Yeah, totally. So let's take this information and your thoughts about bull and bear and answer this question. I come to you. I have $10 million in cash. I said, Garrett, I want the best advice in the world, and I'm coming to you. What do I do with it right now today? Well, if you're coming to me and you don't know what to do with it, you shouldn't be doing anything because as soon as you rely on someone else to tell you what to do with your money, you're in danger. Because nobody cares about your money more than you do. And everybody has their own investor DNA. Look at, I mean, David Osborne, he's got an amazing investor DNA when it comes to real estate and even in how building a business. So 
But if you, you know, there's probably things that if you asked him about, he doesn't really pay that much attention to. So, but if you did ask him, he'd probably tell you real estate based upon his capabilities, his concepts. For me, I'm gonna tell you intellectual property, but most people shouldn't touch intellectual property. They're not really crafted or built to, to build it. So, so to me, it's gonna be, I would look at acquisition entrepreneurship. I would wait for this recession hit and trim everybody. And I'd look at buying a business that you understand and know something about that you can cash flow from day one. Because you can buy it at a much lower multiple than the stock market. And you can buy it in a thing that you have a lot of influence over. And $10 million is going to mean something in that world where you're going to have real negotiating power to get an even deeper discount because you can move quickly. That's great advice. Uh, and, and I like that answer. And it's funny because uh, one of our GoPros, I just got back from Patagonia, and one of our GoPros was in that situation where he was shifting jobs from the political arena where he was a high-paid consultant, let's say, for politicians in one area of the country and moved to get married to another area of the country and was looking at buying businesses. So I would ask you this, if his background is in politics, should he look at businesses based on numbers? Should he look at some sort of business that is in his arena? What, what, what kind of advice would you have for him? Because he was kind of lost as to where should I take some money and put it right now? We always got to stay, stay busy. Yeah, you got to look at the numbers, even if you're investing in areas you know, because the problem with investing in areas that you know is if you don't understand the numbers, you can easily be emotionally manipulated. And the higher the emotion, the lower the financial IQ. So numbers always have to be a part of it. But he might know in the political realm where there's guaranteed contracts, where the money, the, the politicians would bring money or government would bring money, where you can create consistency. I call it the economic value of certainty. If you have predictability with your cash flow, you can have a higher level of leverage, a higher level of production when it comes to building out your team, having the right bandwidth, knowing what's going on. When you have unpredictable cash flow, it's a crazy thing. It's, it's really difficult to manage and you're usually dealing in scarcity rather than proactive abundance. So what does he know that gives him an insider advantage over someone that has never been in that realm? If he can figure that out, there's something to be monetized. If he knows where the demand is, you know, and I think, the, the Porter model that's, uh, that was created, I think it was, uh, it's been in a lot of Harvard Business Review and everything like that. One of my books, I really enjoy, Bootstrap Business. Uh, that author uses the Porter model to determine where to invest, how to invest when it comes to buying businesses. There's another book, Buy Then Build by Walker Dibel, who I like. Um, and that's another good one when you're going to acquire businesses. I would dive in deeper into those arenas, the Porter model, and then Buy Then Build to really figure out what to do there. Because otherwise, I'm giving too generic of advice. Yeah, no, that's great. The portal, P-O-R-T-A-L? It's the porter, P-O-R-T-E-R, oh, like last oh, name. Porter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, cool. Porter model. Okay, good stuff. So recently, you met with Bruce Peterson, GoPro, and Tim Rode, one of the founders of GoBundance. You, they, you sat down with them individually. Your team did. work with them for months, right? Can you give us a, just as using, uh, let's just use, I say Tim as an example, and I'm going to make this up, right? Now, Tim's told me some of this, but, but I'm going to kind of make this up a little bit. You sat down with Tim, you said, holy shit, dude, you're 60 years old. You need to fix all this stuff. And you put it together, and now he's really happy with it. Can you tell us exactly what you did in, in a simple, short answer uh, for Tim and Tina and, and what you do for your average client. So Tim and Tina, they came to our Wealth Acceleration Workshop, which is two and a half days. 
And we just went through everything from their car insurance, homeowners, liability, disability, medical, life, business owner policies. We looked at taxes, last three years, current year taxes, we looked at the cash flow reports. We looked at ways to optimize that. We looked at investments. We looked at like their, their loan structures. We looked at all that kind of stuff and figured out, are they set? Are they not set? And is there any financial blind spots or stress testing we need to do to see where their risk is? Once we figure that out, then we said, okay, what kind of things could be implemented? And we built a team for them. So they have a financial quarterback. That quarterback helps navigate everything to go through and figure out what the priorities are, which things to address first. And we have an accredited network, which is a virtual family office. So we have the attorneys, the accountants, the investment advisors, the cash flow specialists, that anything that was broken, they come in to fix it. Anything that was missing, they come in to get the implementation done to save those guys time. So it began with a two and a half day immersion, and then it was building out the team to actually do the implementation, and that's what we did. That's great, Garrett. Well, uh, is there anything today you want to leave the GoBros with that might help them in, in their wealth building in 2020? Yeah, you can go to wealthfactory.com forward slash megakit, and you can grab two of my books. You can grab an entrepreneur's guide to cash flow there. So just some great gifts that kind of put this out there. If you want to put this on the ground and learn a little bit more and stay engaged with us, we'll send like four or five content emails. And then every now and again, we'll make an offer of things that you could buy or do with us, but it's going to be high value stuff. Um, the thing I would leave you with though, is figure out your investor DNA, learn what, like create a life that you want to live now. Don't wait to do that and sacrifice. And then, you know, one of the ways to do that is plug the leaks, make sure you're not overspending on taxes or, interest or investment fees that don't help you out. And uh, that'll just help get you started in the best direction. That's awesome. Well, I appreciate you coming on today, Garrett, and I uh, look forward to seeing you at an event in the near future. All right, man. We'll see you soon. Fellow Greenleaf bestseller. Good to, good to talk with you. In life, to be honest, I failed as much as I've succeeded. But I love my wife. I love my life, and I wish you my kind of success. Don't step to me, don't step to me, bitch. Now you can